Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ranking Thrones. I am James Kelly, and joining us again is our, our is a special guest, Jim McGeehan. Hi, Jim. Uh, hi, great to be back, and uh, great to talk about this with you. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't so long ago that we were talking about something, and now we get to talk about something else, and so that's just great. All right, yeah. So, um, listening to Jim's wonderful panel he did at Ice and Fire Con got me thinking that I'd like to kind of join in the conversation but also go even further and let's just talk about the broader perspective of the history of westeros and talk about the eras of of the of the dragon lords and their downfall ultimately and kind of what happened why did it happen and kind of like maybe a bit of the trends all this fun stuff for the deep lore fans like us yeah, you can kind of see it. You track the historiography of like what's the different types of eras that the Targaryen dynasty was in. I think this this panel was at uh, Con of Thrones, uh, maybe two years back, or yeah, I think two years back. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was, it was a simple premise. It was uh, the Targaryens had an idea of monarchy that was based around dragons, but what happens when the dragons die out? Because they die out about 150 years before the Targaryen dynasty is overthrown. So there has to be a essentially a psychological identity crisis within the monarchy. And then they have to go and say, well, now we need to resolve this by defining who we are now that the thing that we defined who we are no longer exists. Yeah. So this is going to be fun. I really enjoyed this panel. Uh, when, it first, when I first did it, I did it with, uh, I think it was Aziz from History of Westeros, uh, Samantha uh, from Watchers on the Wall. And actually, believe it or not, one of the actors from the show he, yeah yeah he was a canadian actor he was an extra um uh, i believe his name was ben love and um he said he he was famous because uh he was killed by the hound in a in a scene wow. so he, he, he got to enjoy that a lot and so he was uh he was very stoked about that to share that yeah but unfortunately we have we have no such uh acting fame we must be we must have to we have to sell ourselves with the uh with our brains oh well as much as that that, that'll entice people so the way i'm thinking about how we handle this is i think we're gonna try to go in as depth as much depth as we can for each of the eras and kind of like uh maybe map out and jim will we, we we can begin sort of a debate but when when certain eras really begin and i I myself have several ideas for what eras I would define. The first era I would call would be the Conqueror Age. And this is basically, it doesn't end when Aegon is, has given up on Dorne and says like, okay, this is my kingdom. I think it goes from, from Aegon all the way up to the end of Magor's reign. Because this is an era where there's really no strict definition of what exactly the king of Westeros is supposed to be. What really is the king and what is his relationship with his people? So I think uh, I think I would go a little bit further and say that uh, we can really see this era going from the conquest, you know, Aegon's conquest all the way to the the establishment of the Jaharius in legal code. Because I see this as a an idea of the monarchy at first as it's just an overlord, whereas yes. Jaharis is actually building a sort of national identity through a common code of law 
and other things like that. Whereas we, we see with Aegon's progress, he has maesters advise him and say, what is the local tradition, legal tradition here? And then uh, he uses that to inform his decisions, which makes a lot of sense from a concourse standpoint. You want to rock as few boats as possible. You don't want to make things too uncomfortable. I mean, Balery and the Black Dread is good, but Dorn showed that it's not an automatic I win button. Yeah. Well, that was the biggest thing that kind of going into, I want to really more focus on Aegon the King versus Aegon the Conqueror. Oh, yeah. No, we can do Aegon the Conqueror at a whole other time. Yeah, which is almost everyone, when they think of Aegon, wants to think about that and that that alone. But like that that was actually one of the great tests for Aegon the King and in establishing his his power base and what he could do in response is that that Rhaenys could die on her dragon kind of by pure happenstance, but it happened. And that Dorne could not be conquered by Aegon with with three dragons and with Oris Baratheon and all his great giant army that really established that force alone could not ultimately always guarantee victory that, and, and it's important to note that Aegon really understood this because he devoted so much time to the royal progress uh, it's important because In feudalism, the personal is political, and the presence of the king is everything. It's a very personalized system of government. So that Aegon would travel his kingdom, and people would see him, and you know he would be seen. People would see him and know that he is their king. Even something as simple as just a a coin stamp, you know, face stamped on money is one thing, but seeing him, seeing this dragon, is an entirely different beast altogether. And so he uses this charisma to basically awe people into submission and to assert that he is the overlord. So it's interesting to see how he – because it's, it's funny because Aegon's conquest is two years. Yeah. But he, he, he ruled for a quarter century after that, give or take. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait, is it a quarter century? Um, let me get my notes. Me, is it short, oh. shorter than that? Is it? Um, no, I think he actually yeah, – yeah, no, he did rule for like um, – not as the longest, obviously, is Jaehaerys. He holds the record. Yeah. But Aegon, uh, like he he got. Okay, hold on, I'm getting it right now. Uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, he, oh, yeah. He, Aegon, he died in 37, a- 37 AD. 30, 30, or AC, so, yeah, yeah, 37 years. Yeah. So I mean, you think about th- so that's roughly speaking, two years of war, another maybe 10 or so uh, for the various off and on campaigns against Dorne. But then you know you have this entire era of peace and yeah. you don't really hear too much about different conflicts i mean certainly you, you heard there was conflict there was a conflict on the sisters that Torrent stark put down and stuff like that mm-hmm. so there's stuff you know it's not nothing happened yeah but but the fact that he had a stable realm and you saw no big rebellions like you would see with Aenys or magor so suggests that there's very clearly good administrative work being done yeah. I mean, uh, what you said earlier, and this is kind of the big thing earlier that, that I think really is important to de- that defines this era until you get to wonderful Jaehaerys, is that basically Aegon is not really king of Westeros. He's lord of Westeros. Yeah. I mean, he's like, he's high king. He's high king in name, but uh, yeah. but it's really 
more of an overlordship than it is yeah. anything else. It's uh, you see a lot of more uh, autonomy from his vassals in terms of identity and yes. legal practices, especially these legal practices. And what you touched on earlier, it's something that one of the rare times where Martin has been kind of clear cut in in criticizing his own characters is like saying that that Danny should have looked to her to the the history of Aegon the Conqueror when it came to conquering and that what she's trying to do in Marine while completely and understandably justified and noble is something that Aegon in his right mind never dreamed of 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 really reforming Westeros just after he conquered it well, and trying to like change Westeros to be this kind of kingdom well it's just it, it takes a long time because you know people identify i mean the things that I mean nations are slar glacial compared to the changing of people i mean that's not to yes. say that you know what uh, what happened in slaver's bay was was a right thing to do but it's just interesting to say that you know it's it's you have to find methods there's different ways you can do it and there's benefits and drawbacks to everything and mm -hmm. um but i mean we'll see i mean we'll see I mean, we'll yeah. see how uh, slaver's obviously have to see how it ultimately goes for for Danny, but I mean we kind yeah, well, of already know that it it didn't exactly work. But yeah. well, I mean it, it's it's not like uh, I mean slavery didn't end in the the 13th or 14th century. I mean yeah, <laughs> this that there's it's been a scourge of you know a scourge on history. I do believe in fact there's archaeological evidence of slavery before writing, which I mean whew, wow, I mean talk about the oldest yeah. institution. <laughs> Uh, well, that's a whole discussion for another time. Yeah, yeah, uh, I've gotten off topic. No, no, no. It's a, we, we always go off topic. We we, we, we talk about it and like this is a great free free flowing kind of discussion and not exactly a debate, but just discussion. Yeah. And so, in some ways, like I both admire this and you can be semi-critical of Aegon for being refusing. Like, there's only about two things off the top of my head, like, that he really does where he is kind of reforming Westeros. The only major one is he basically forbids, is one, is one his choice to appoint several people to be lords of, of several of his dominions, and that, like, he gives Oris Baratheon uh, the Stormlands, and he also appoints the Tyrells as the lords of the Reach. Well, yeah, that's the Aegon Doctrine. That's the thing I've 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 written so much on. It's, I think it's actually my contribution to the fandom at large is the idea that uh, Aegon was very very clear in that um, if you serve him and serve him loyally, you will be rewarded, and that is the path to power. Specifically, yeah. I mean, you have these ancient kings. So you know the Starks, the Lannisters, the Arryns. These are people who held crowns and ruled regions in their own right, and they are held. At an equal level to Edmund Tully, Boris yes. Baratheon, mm -hmm. Lionel Tyrell. Oh no, no, Harlan Tyrell. Lionel Tyrell is a different one. Mm -hmm. uh, they're considered equal in service, not because of. I mean, in terms of lineage, clearly the Starks, Lannisters, and Arryns have got these kids beat. Hand over. Yeah. I mean, you know, no problem. But it's this idea of service, and specifically, you also see, which is uh, quite unusual is that you see that these vassals are actually appointed to senior delegatory positions as opposed to him keeping all of these things and reserving the greatest honors for his own individual 
uh, people. So Torrin Stark puts down a rebellion. Uh, you have uh, Harlan Tyrell named as one uh, or to named as Warden of the South. You have Edmund Tully becomes Hand of the King after Oris Baratheon is mm-hmm. uh, uh, he, yeah, he, he he resigned. Yeah, he resigned. Yeah. He, he he died on the way back, but he resigned first. Um, oh no no no! He doesn't die. Um, we just did an episode on Oris. Oris, uh, like we'll, we'll we'll talk about how Oris kind of helped overcome the inadequacies of of Aegon's successor, but he died in er- in Aenys' reign. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's how he. But yeah, he resigned his commission so that he could uh, could pursue the uh, the conflicts against Dorne with it, without having being distracted by ruling the kingdom. But yeah, it's so interesting to see that Aegon really did appoint his uh, the people that he trusted with a lot of power. Yeah. I mean, Visenya and Rhaenys and Oris were probably the people he trusted the most of all. And you saw that Rhaenys, so they were all yeah. his siblings. Yeah, and but it's interesting because Rhaenys actually sits the Iron Throne and issues uh, edicts as if she was a magistrate. You know, I mean, she's mm-hmm. is, she's well, not she's not as a magistrate. She's acting as the king, issuing magisterial powers. You have Visenya, who's in charge of building the Red Keep, and but this this thing about Rhaenys sitting on the Iron Throne is telling because you see in a Feast for Crows, Cersei is a regent, but she is not permitted to sit the Iron Throne. Yeah. She has to make do with with a couch, uh, which always strikes me as putting the like the body kit of a Cadillac on some beat up <laughs> some beat up uh, car. It's like, yeah, it looks like it can go vroom vroom, but it can't actually go vroom vroom. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the idea of it is that this it, it shows that, you know, uh, Visenya and Rhaenys were treated as senior ministers and there was nothing. Yeah. I mean. I would say they would. He would probably even go further if he wasn't such a unitary king. I mean, he's he's obsessed with the idea of a unitary kingship. So, you know, there's always going to be that I am the king. But I think because I mean, I'm certain he, he was always in council with Rhaenys and Visenya. Mm-hmm. He always respected their opinions, always listened to them to, to deliberate what it was that they should do. So yes, he heeded counsel. He definitely heeded counsel. But but I mean, what we were talking about earlier for in terms of being this sort of paramount ruler was that he would just he would always immediately ask the maesters what's the precedent what's the precedent of and what's the laws for here for this part of the realm yeah. in terms so, of so he would, so when he would go to the north he would judge as though a northern king would judge when he went mm-hmm. to the reach he would judge as a king of the the reach would judge yeah. he didn't, and it, it's nice too because it it really does work for the the time period because of nobody, I mean, you still have all of these people who remember what it's like to be an independent Reachman or Westerman yeah. or Stormlander. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of an identity is built slowly. It's a very slow thing. I mean, there are certain things and ideas in later uh, eras of history which can help speed that along in terms of building an, an identity. But in so much of these medieval era, you're you're defined as I am this lord's man or that lord's man, whichever yes. territory you happen to belong to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea, so the idea is now you are Aegon's man, but you are not also Aegon's man. If you're a Northman, you're also Torrin Stark's man, and so and it just it's a it's a ladder. It just goes yeah. all the way up. Um, Establishing so the ladder. Yeah, and just, but it's yeah. just he all he does really is just say that there's a new rung on the top of the ladder. You know, you still having you can still keep your own legal traditions. You can still keep your own this, that, and the other thing. The borders 
for these places don't change, which is very interesting. You would expect maybe that uh, if the Riverlanders joined on first, that's well, that's choice... not true because the Iron Islands technically. Well, yeah, they're, that they're, that they're that's a special case though. I'm I'm talking more about for the Reach or the Vale or stuff like that. Those those yeah. borders did change, but no, no, yes, no. The Iron Islands did, but that was because you saw that Edmund Tully went and sought Aegon out. Yeah. To to swear fealty to him, so he has to be rewarded that mm-hmm. way. I mean, and it makes perfect sense. Again, that this fits with the Aegon Doctrine. If you are loyal to me and serve me well, really the sky's the limit. You you can go up to as far as Lord Paramount. And yeah. Edmund Tully went up to Lord Paramount and even Hand of the King. So you see this incredible, uh, this idea that uh, service and competence are really what matters as opposed to anything else, which is kind of a, I mean, it's, it's a more modern concept than uh, usually, you know, I'm... You know, ancient tradition says that I get this, but I mean, the more practical concerns of I have the biggest duchy, so you have to at least not annoy me too much. Hello, Warwick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if people need to uh, look at the War of the Roses to understand that reference. Yeah, well, the real life Tywin Lannister, that's all I'll say. Uh, I, I'd say he's also a bit of a Walder Frey and a Renly as well. There's, there's a take, take the, the kind of Frey, Renly, and uh, definitely John Aaron also. Of like, there's a little bit of everyone in in Warwick. Yeah. Well, if you're looking at what we to, to understand this reference, basically take the worst parts of Walder Frey and Renly and Tywin and just distill them into a person, and you have the Kingmaker. Yes. Oh, what a character! What a character! So I think we're saying pretty much what we're going to say about Aegon. Pretty, pretty much wise wise ruler. King, yes and no, in a way. That's the strange thing about his legacy, though. And um, I think especially with his sons, there's basically two sides of Aegon, that his sons embodied each one side of, it, of him. And yeah, we'll get into this when I talk about that, because I call them the Parrot Kings, which is... It's going to be a very fun thing when we get to that. But it's also okay, I love this. That, that Visenya, too, because after Rhaenys dies, Visenya is really his only uh, his his only wife left. And she takes on a lot of uh, things that she needs to do, whether it's building the Red Keep or whatever. But since Aegon spent so much time on Dragonstone and, and was a, you know, a private person just in terms of personality... Yes. Uh, you would definitely see that Visenya would be a very visible and active force within the early Targaryen monarchy. So, you know, it's it's you know it's so, always interesting to say, you know, she's she's you know hard as iron. She advocated for you know hardcore military solutions. She advised Megor to do the same. She advised Aenys to do the same. Now, I'm not saying that that's you know she was definitely a hard woman. She was a tough woman. Let's not you know sell her short. But yeah. it's also it's it's worth mentioning that she also had a very very strong sense of administration. Yes. So you know let, let's not let's not lose that aspect of her uh, when we just think of her as this iron queen. She she was an iron queen, but she knows that you have to build you have to make iron you yes. know into steel, and that's what uh, Visenya could do with her just as much as with her administrative uh, touch as with her uh, war touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, also remember that she had a pet monkey that she kept around. 
Well, that's so that's actually I mean, that that was common among uh, in, in the medieval era. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Ladies would keep exotic pets like I remember one of the things is that uh, uh, noble women like young noble women would keep uh, squirrels on <laughs> collars and they, those were those were pets. Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, you, you have to do that. I mean, certainly there's a bit of it is showing off if you can have an exotic pet then you show the uh, the wealth and influence that you possess. And, I mean, Visenya's not stupid. She knows she has to do things like that because that's the Absolutely. way, you know, that that's the way feudalism is is held. The thing I, I wanted to, to jump off of, of what your points about Visenya and agree with you, the thing I, I feel that when you talk about this era is that in a way, I feel that Visenya is even more influential of a of a figure than Aegon himself, just because she is she is around for Aegon's reign, all of Aenys' reign, and the majority of Maegor's reign. And I'll also say this, and hear me out on this: basically, the only time in Maegor's reign where he was basically competent, not good, but competent at his tyranny. Once Visenya is off the table, Magor completely loses any like effectiveness in his tyranny. Well, that's not. But I mean, he he also did lots of ineffective tyranny when Visenya was still alive. But you're talking about yes. like like taking out uh, the Aaron rebels, um, you know, planting his standard on the uh, to take back King's Landing and stuff like that. You're, you're talking about that the early Magor before he gets the uh, so there, there's an interesting theory that I've heard yeah. um, about um, Magor got the head injury and yeah. then he was yeah. reanimated. Yeah. By, some some say it's by uh, Tiana of the Tower and some say that it's um, Visenya herself. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, and you know I, I can see that. Uh, I mean I you know I personally uh, think. It's Speculating, I think it it's worthless. I think it's something Tiana did personally, but I mean mm. we'll get into that. Uh, and we'll, to kind of preview what I'm what we're gonna say when we get to Magor, uh, I will say it's kind of basically that I mean that like he d- is like at least effectively, although 100% clear cut tyrannically responding to the the threat of the faith militant. He's responding to these these crises and he is like theoretically resolving them at that time because Visenya is helping him solve that. And basically the minute that Visenya is gone, the faith arise again. And then also Jaehaerys and Queen Alyssa escape from Dragonstone and suddenly start proclaiming and the Lords, Lord Baratheon and other Lords start hailing Jaehaerys as King. Yeah, and I think that is one of the things about that supports the th- the theory about Visenya being the one who was able to manage him because it's when when she dies, Magor is said to be like sluggish and you know uncharacteristically yeah. just just bad at this. It's it's just like it when a when some sort of golem loses control of their master, uh, yeah. uh, and then you have the uh, you know the, it just it doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll get into that, uh, which will be fun. But uh, yeah, so the, um, you were saying about the uh, the two elements of them, and that gives brings me. This was an essay I wrote for a Song of Ice and Fire uh, tournament. I actually had to. You have to submit them anonymously, but then, 
But then you uh, once obviously the the thing I think I got was the quarterfinalist and the only non mod from the R slash ASIF to make it to that fo- to that that point. But it was uh, it was called uh, the Parrot Kings. And it's basically where this is one of Aegon's chief failures is that he did not impart the crucial context to understand ideas of his kingship to his sons. So you have Aenys who loves the courtly pageantry of everything but he was not treating the monarchy as a delegator but as an appeaser yeah he he was saying that rather than it's like oh if you do this you'll get rewarded which something like Aegon would say all right you're doing this and when you do it you'll get rewarded he's he says oh you did something for me i'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom which uh the Greyjoys took advantage of to create a lot of religious strife and that, that's a mistake. You have to understand that as the king, you must be decisive. You have to be because that's the way that feudalism depends on. I mean, whether or not you think feudalism is a good thing, I personally don't. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that very many people do. But if not you are a king, but if you are a king, you have to be decisive and make the things because you are the commander in chief. You are the one that has to make the decision and the, the vassals are supposed to follow it. Uh, to the to the best of their ability. Now, if you violate the feudal contract, there's that, this, that, and the other thing. But he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He is in charge of Westeros's military forces. He has a dragon. He's supposed to be doing these things, and each time he doesn't, each time he changes his mind, or somebody else does it before he can even get there, he just looks weaker and weaker. And all that does is embolden, you know, disloyal elements to to act again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of these these things keep cropping up and his failure to do that can causes more things to crop up. You can't say that the faith militant, when they saw how poorly he prosecuted someone like, um, uh, what was it, House Cahorus uh, mm-hmm. or um, the Just Vale like Rebellion. The Aaron Rebellion, yeah. Yeah. Every single time he fails to do this, everyone says, well, I mean, you know, if I play my cards right, I can actually be successful Whereas if somebody maybe five years older says, well, maybe if I play my cards right, no, Balerion's going to land on me and tear me into five pieces. No, yeah. that's exactly what's going to happen. So you can't, you had to be able to show strength. And the fact that Aenys saw that Aegon treated his vassals very well and yes. rewarded them and respected who they were. But he didn't understand that he needed to be decisive as well and that he could say, yes, you are who you are and I can celebrate, you know, we're going to go and issue laws in your lands the way that your forefathers did. But that was not because he just said, I'm not going to do anything. He just had a clear sense of what he needed to do, what his delegates needed to do and what he wouldn't do. And then Magor, on the other hand, only saw the conquest. Yes. Like, like so, this is exactly what you said earlier in the uh, in the thing. You said, you know, we see we only think of Aegon as a conqueror, and yeah. he, but he had thirty five thirty five rule uh, years after that after his, the conquest was over. So what yeah. the heck was that all about? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it was. Is Magor said, well, look, Aegon defeated his enemies. He did not make peace with them. He had them surrender to him. Yeah. But it, but it's like, well, a no, Dorne clearly didn't. But yeah. B, also, he was very, very keen to make sure that they built themselves back up. He did not make a desert and call it a peace. I mean, that's uh, something. Basically, I think Magor, and to kind of interject, I, I do want to get back yeah. a little bit to 
Anies, although I agree with everything you've just said okay. about him. It's that with Magor, I think he just he took the lesson of Hall as like, okay, that's ultimately be all end all. Of course, like like being nice, sure, but but he also has seen like his bro- brother trying to be nice and sees how well how effective that is. Yes. And so I think he just ultimately says like, no, Hall's the ultimate. Like, no, I use Balerion and like that solves everything. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, I, I really think it is just he really thought that the only thing that would work is unconditional surrender. Yeah. So, you know, once, you, once you unconditionally surrendered, you might you might keep your head. You might not. Um, but the idea, I mean, that's part of the part of the problem with that. I mean, get that when you get to the Dance of the Dragons. But um, yeah. the idea is, is that you don't just do that i mean aegon had a very clear sense of using symbols he cloaked himself in symbols of legitimacy to strengthen the soft power of ruling i mean that's why he converted to the faith of the seven that's, that's why, why he was crowned and yeah as a as a king as opposed to uh you know he adopted the valyrian system of the dragon lords and that's also why he un, he built a banner. He, he established this heraldic banner. I mean, they even say in the world book, there's no such thing as heraldic banners in the Valyrian Freehold. That was just stupid. Mm-hmm. But uh, he said, no, if I'm going to be a Westerosi king, I need to be seen as a Westerosi. And the way that the nobles do that is through a heraldic banner. Mm-hmm. So he had this big coronation ceremony at the Aegon Fort with the, the dragons breathing fire at the, the moment of uh, crowning and, you know, a big stage ceremony. I mean, sure, it sounds like a dog and pony show, but symbols and ceremony are important. And they're especially important in a in a world where 95 percent of the population is illiterate. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's very important that he takes his crown from from the from the from the high septon oh yeah the as, second coronation yeah the second coronation is what he considers the start of his legitimate reign as king yeah. and yeah. being being crowned in old town that's when he was became king in for for legal purposes of course that's not when he really became king but yeah well i mean when when has uh when has a politician not used a convenient historical fiction to strengthen their rule right it never happens looking at you henry tudor yeah anyways uh the for 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 Ares though like I I will somewhat combat you although I don't think you're gonna really disagree with, with me in that like one his indecisiveness is I think somewhat noble in that like when when some of the major rebellions start happening well well within his first year of reign and I think this is not Aegon's fault but it's just something that like I think is just inevitable is is how much do the Westerosi think to themselves like is this seven kingdoms thing is this just Aegon or is it a permanent fixture and so there's obviously going to be lords who are going to contest this and say like no it was just Aegon Aegon's gone like I don't care they're well, gonna I test mean, the waters and that and that Aegon's and that Aenys's first response which I think in a way is almost sweet and endearing but at the same time frustrating from as you said uh a need to be decisive is that he his first response is well why are they rebelling is it against me is it something i did let's find out why that's like no 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 that's something you do after it's over yeah well i mean the thing is is that if they say if somebody rebels over a tax a a tax thing you know that there there's an issue for saying all right well you know 
let's have a parlay and see if we can't sort it out. But I mean, these, these guys are, you know, like the, the Aaron rebellion, this guy straight up killed his cousins. Yeah. Was it cousin or nephew or, um, uh, something like that. Yeah. But it's like, no, you don't. Because I mean, at this point, you know, the King who flew is your loyal vassal. He surrendered his crown. Well, to you, I mean, his, his mother did because he was a kid. Yeah. But I mean, you owe your vassals protection. That's one of the key things of feudalism is that you surrender autonomy for protection. Mm-hmm. And so that Amy's wasn't doing that is is terrible. I mean, like I said, if, if it's a tax thing, maybe you can talk, think about, well, let's go yeah. figure this, hash this out. But when it's straight up an armed rebellion, putting one of your senior vassals at siege, the time for diplomacy is over. The time for i mean if you're talking about negotiations at this point this is a hostage negotiation yeah not not a council meeting or any anything like that so that that's my issue is that the the indecisiveness is just it's not it's not the right tool for what needed to be done and if there are multiple rebellions you know you you delegate i mean there's religious rebellion in in the iron islands there's and then there's just the dorn immediately sees weak king immediately invade immediately invade and it's the lords that to their credit the loyal lords that that save king Aenys from himself yeah but i mean that's the thing is is that he should have been the one saying you know all right you know you handle the dorn thing let's go and see let's see who we're going to put in charge of the uh the iron islands probably one of the Greyjoys because they're the senior lord you know all right um you know this aaron thing is kind of serious magor i'm putting you in charge of that um you know, that's exactly what Aegon I did. If he felt like he needed to step in, he'd step in. But he was also a master delegator. So yeah. that's what I think the, the issue is with Aenys. I mean, that was not the time to call for a great council. A no. great council is a tool. I mean, ideally, it would be a tool of peace in yes. a time. When you think, let's go and look at the next direction that we're going to go into. Now, I mean, in, in practice, actually, the great council just has just been really for succession the idea to, yeah. to secure claim and a claim uh for the different claimants which i understand you want to make sure you want to secure vassal buy-in for mm-hmm. that to to avoid a you know avoid war, civil a war, war of the five kings or anything like that or first blackfire rebellion yeah or first blackfire rebellion but um you know the 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 things that were happening in Aenys's reign were not the sort of things that you call a great council for and that was that but the problem is is that he didn't see it that way he's he said well you know we i you know aegon was a leader of vassals and he always made sure to secure buy-in and it's like yes but he did he secured a buy-in in certain ways and he knew when to be a commander-in-chief in other ways and he clearly didn't so that's my idea of Aenys as a parrot of aegon yes. he he's just repeating what he saw but he doesn't understand it he doesn't have context and greater meaning behind it there's no comprehension he so. basically he saw gentle Aegon, and that's why I agree with your parrot characterization. Is that he basically tries to embody Aegon the king, and the idea of Aegon the gentle-handed ruler that was kind and considerate. And that's but as you said, like he doesn't understand the context behind being that. Yeah, yeah. There, there's and, a point behind all that ceremony. It's not just yes. ceremony for the sake of ceremony. Yes. The other thing, though, I will say, like he. And this is something that uh, 
Gildane says in Fire and Blood Volume 1 is ironically he was decisive, but the things that he was decisive about were the things that maybe you should have been a bit more open-minded about. Which is oh, like yeah. he, he at the, the same marriage. time basically causes the the faith to rebel yeah. by saying like, oh yeah, totally, my, my, my kids are going to marry each other. Yeah. yeah. Well, so it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, like Aegon, we kind of like grandfathered that in. Yeah. But, like we kind of ignored it because Aegon, you know, conquered us. But do you really think like that whole incest thing, like that should go on? It's like, yeah, yeah, I totally do. Like, but yeah. you didn't marry a sibling. Well, I didn't have an option. I had a brother. And Westeros doesn't swing that way yet. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, it's it's interesting because I think West. Uh, Westeros actually conforms more to the uh, the Greek idea, uh, the Greek uh, the Greek where it's all about the perform performative masculinity in public. Yeah. yeah. But um, it's funny because so in marriages the parents do have the ultimate choice for making the thing. So yeah, he has every right to be as decisive as he wants to be. So this is I think is him not listening to counsel when someone says because I mean you saw with Magor. You know, you saw a dress rehearsal of the faith going, wait, what? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I forgot about that, but yes, 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 yes. So it's, I mean, it, it makes it even worse in a way because Aenys is clearly not learning his lesson. Yeah. You know, so that, and that's, that's a big problem. That's one of the things I love about Edmure Tully so much is that he actually at least a little bit learns from his mistakes you know, his his mistake in uh, the early War of the Five Kings. And so he says, all right, well, let's maybe actually wage this a bit more intelligently. Now, I mean, at the Battle of the Forge, now there's a whole host of problems with strategically with the Battle of the Forge and all that. He was still making a boneheaded mistake. But as opposed to just just throwing away his troops out of the sake of pride, yeah. you know, he's, he did a little bit better. I like the fact that he actually learned from his mistakes. and And you need that in writing, too. I mean, mm -hmm. you see Sansa learning from her early mistakes in in the early novels to what she becomes in the later novels, and that's yeah. good. That's character growth. That's mm -hmm. that's what you want. That's a sign of a good book. <laughs> yeah. But Aenys is clearly not learning from his mistakes, so of course he's just relegated to a worthless background character. Oh. Oh, oh that's not even that's not even the meanest thing I've ever said about Aenys. Have you seen <laughs> you you've read Fire and Blood Volume One, right? Yes. And you've seen the picture on the inside cover, the yeah. the ones about the different ones. So my idea thing is, if you look at Aenys, he looks like a guy who just came up with the sickest burn ever, but the person has already left the room. <laughs> huh. Go 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 and look at it, and you will see. Everyone who's listening, go and look at it, and you'll look at it, and you'll never be able to unsee it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well. Yeah, I mean, I have no kind words for Aenys other than pity, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's just so. I mean, and I mean, point where where he is, does have a point is that from a character base, and we we ignore the ickiness of Targaryen incest, is that if if ever there was a a, a right power couple, like Reyna was definitely Vicen like the second Visenya potentially, of that she was totally could have been a great queen. Oh, absolutely. A, tr a truly great queen. Unfortunately, she ended up becoming a, a, a Magor's queen, which is a whole other thing we'll get into about that. But but she, she like, even more than, than both her father and her brother-husband, like, really seems to understand, like, what it takes to rule. As yeah. in, like, father, when we go in this progress, I think I should bring my dragon along with me. 
Yeah, no, so, I mean... And, and he's just like, but you're the dragon rider and not Aegon, so they'll see you as inferior to her, to you. It's like, well, you know, also dragons are useful. Something, yeah. something, something, Aegon made a, con- a kingdom with three of them. Yeah. And, and you know, and he, so, he, really sh- he really should know better. He was alive for a lot of it. No, no, he wasn't. Yeah. He was born in seven. He was born in seven yeah, AC, but, but, but he still knew that it happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, he, he was like, hey, Dad, can you tell me about the conquest? Yeah, sure. I'm sure I'm sure there were heralds that regaled it, regaled it every every time they saw yeah. him. Oh, well, yeah, you have to, like, propaganda and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and heroize it and all those songs that that probably Robert himself liked. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but, like, oh, uh, so yeah. but yeah no you had he just he didn't understand what he was doing to his detriment so yeah and that's and so we get into the situation by the end where where the full incompetence is 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 demonstrated of, of being this kind of indecisive overlord king that lets his lords kind of pounce all over him yeah. is that is that lord lannister then basically kidnaps or holds hostage the king's heirs yep and then like depending on who you ask either amy's got sick or or visenya just said all right enough yeah poisoned him yeah 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 it doesn't really matter but uh it whatever happened you know whether it's thank thank the molecules of poison or thank the pathogens although uh, should we really thank because then they got magor <laughs> well now that is true but that's hardly that's hardly their fault they were going to get magor anyway <laughs> well no 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 theoretically there there might have been a chance for for uh, Aegon Aegon the young, yeah Aegon the younger yeah for Aegon the uncrowned and reyna the big tragedy is that reyna wasn't there oh, to, yeah. like a real king yeah. i mean i when we had chloe from girls that gone canon on we really did like uh, I pointed out, like there's these two, probably for our next episode when we talk about the Dance with the Dragons is the Dance with the Dragons is is really the this like culmination of all these obviously talented and qualified female claimants being passed over, and finally a female claimant saying, "Nope, I'm not being passed over." Well, she okay. she was and she was the incompetent one. It's like you have all of these competent uh, women. And then, yeah. and then the the one woman that says I'm going to take a stand against this is is the the terrible one. <laughs> mm, oh yeah, terrible no. In, oh in, no, in she she was terrible. That, uh, okay, well, that'll you, be a fun, o- fun discussion. You, you take over. I say yeah. You, you take over King's Landing during the middle of a war, and you decide you're going to waste all that money on a uh, on a party. Yeah, no. You have you have wars to win. There, <laughs> you have wars to win. Okay, well. That's a discussion for another time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but Reyna, and then when we get to it, Rainies. Although Rainies, we'll talk, the queen that never was, we'll talk about more in the next episode, I feel. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think so, this episode will just be on the uh, this conquest age from, yeah, yeah. from, yeah, from, uh, yeah. And so basically when we get into it, um, and so obviously like Aenys was so incompetent that all this happened that, he might have met his deserved end, but but then we get Magor and and we get what what you were talking about earlier and what I was talking about earlier is basically the other the dark side of uh, of Magor trying to reflect 
both as a reaction to his brother, but also as a as his mind of like reflecting what his father was, of of the dark side of of Aegon of Aegon the Conqueror of like he's in his own mind he's I am uh, and understandably like I got Blackfire rightfully so and I am riding Balerion the Black Dread I am Aegon's true heir. Yeah, and I mean certainly he sees he's uh, he's as much of a parrot as his brother. Because he's not seeing the the ideas of the conquest behind them. All he sees is just, look, Aegon came in with Valerian, wrecked house, and then there was no one left to oppose him. And then he ruled in peace, which is like, no, that that is, in that is, fact, that, yeah. that's not even Cliff Notes version <laughs> of, of Aegon's conquest. There was so much that went into it. There was so much statecraft. And honestly, I mean, I will say this for Visenya. She's kind of uh, in her uh, the the predecessor of her uh, of their gender flipped uh, names uh, name I guess successor name holder uh, Viserys the oh. the crown the crown uh, you know the brother of Aegon the third she's yeah. basically holding this, this disaster together <laughs> she's yeah. she's essentially keeping the chaos in her in her hand reasonably contained. Yeah. While because she can't stop Magor from doing something. Magor's the king. Yeah. So so she can't stop him. Now she's her no. she's his mother yes. and she's incredibly intelligent and incredibly experienced. So she knows how you can influence somebody without, you know, telling the king no. But you know, it's at the same time, it's like Visenya is definitely probably one of the only strings of sanity that the Magor regime has, especially in yeah. its later that, years. That's why that's why I I both say like that like he had she had this kind of influence for where he was an effective tyrant tyrant 100 percent, but an effective one well i mean it's just yeah it's it's like at least like like she smartly immediately like like she makes sure that like okay immediately get all of like the the one the all of Aenys's heirs that are not that are not like held prisoner by Lord Lannister, we immediately take to Dragonstone and I'm holding them hostage. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that, that's like, immediately like immediately Viserys and, and Jaehaerys are mine. Like, and they are not going anywhere unless I say so. Well, yeah, you mean, you got You got to control all of the rivals that you may have. Absolutely. And, uh, and like, uh, while they're there, uh, Reyna gives birth to twin girls and, mm-hmm. Eventually, I think it's not exactly fully clear, but just basically Lord Lannister either gets tired of Aegon or yeah. no, gets tired of Magor for he's like, all right, you know what? You are my king. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, I was like, well, did, did he actually do that? Or I think he there was more of a more of a support on the long finger type type deal, because if I remember right, he Lannisters didn't actually join until Jaharis. In terms yeah. of fully committing their their troops. Well, I just mean like yeah, he kind of like let him go. Kind yeah, of. yeah, yeah, just, just yeah. Just deniable but... deniable asset more more than an actual open vocal support. So, but we automatically get when when we get Magor like immediately what establishes his reign of of being both the conqueror and being like what you'd said like this hyper masculinity is like okay anyone want to challenge me as king. Come at me right now, like no Belarian, just me with Blackfire in my hands. 
I mean, it, it certainly makes sense. I mean, and he, he got support. I mean, he planted yeah, his he banner did. and he had people flocking to it. Now, I know part of that is just because of the, the social context, you're loyal to your king. But it, it's just it's interesting to see because, I mean, you know, you could say if someone could maybe say, hey, the you know, should it be Aegon the Uncrowned or should it be Maegor? Well, that's really an academic academic debate left yeah. for maesters or whatever. But I mean, at this point, the capital was controlled by the faith militant. It wasn't controlled yeah. by anyone who was anointed as king. So that makes it a little easier for the for anyone to say, well, look. You can't rebel against, I mean, he says, you know, he was the one who, you know, his father was anointed by the High Septon. You're, just, you just have a holy oath to, for the uh, the military orders. One is clearly more powerful than the other in terms of who, who has the bigger punching power within the faith of the seven. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it's just, it's like, you, you see that and then you see this, um, you know, you have all of these different rebellions against him. And it's, it's interesting because they don't exactly coalesce into no. a single unified until Jaharis, of course yes. but and you see but you see that uh, also in the war of the five kings where the lannisters mm-hmm. are dealing with if you if you st- stack all of the enemy factions against the lannisters they're yeah. very clearly outmatched yeah but there's no single figure for them to coalesce behind and that's in contrast with robert's rebellion where you had this one, you know, this one person, he was able to get the Vale, the Stormlands, the North, and the Riverlands all on his side, and then the the Greyjoys and the Lannisters came came later. But you, because they don't have this unifying force, the Lannisters are able to actually secure it, and because they're not, they're fighting each other, they're able to pick them apart piecemeal. I think what was it uh, mm-hmm. when uh, the Clash of Kings, Tyrion said uh, that. Uh, since Stannis is attacking Renly, nothing would surprise him, even if Aegon the Conqueror came in juggling pies or something like that. He's <laughs> uh, like, this is the best right, thing yeah. that could have ever happened to me. Yeah, I want to 100%. Yeah, there's a reason why Cer- Cersei is like both like the great line she says, like, wow, I think Robert was a smart one. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and you see that, too, in a lot of actual history. You see a lot of uh, collaborate like um, rebel movements, insurgency movements spend a lot of time fighting each other as opposed to fighting the thing that they're ostensibly rebelling against. You saw that with partisan The activity. only people we hate more than the, than the Romans are the, are the people's... The people's front of Judea. Judea. Says, no, says we're the, the people's Judea. front of Judea. Oh, I thought we were the popular front. People's front. No, no front. We're, we're, we're the Judean people's front, not the people's front of Judea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in, in World War II, you see all of these different rebel groups. Uh, I mean, in, in Europe, the partisans often fought each other for supplies mm-hmm. and things like that because they knew that there was going to be a conflict after the, the guy person was kicked out. So they wanted everybody else to bleed themselves out so they could take over, whether that was, you know, Tito or the, the various French groups or anything like that. And you, you even saw that. With, plan. Oh, yeah, I know. That was uh, Zedong's plan was to uh, have Chiang Kai-shek punch himself out so that he could take over um but i mean you know he was also he was also kind of kind of annoyed about the whole massacre of communists in uh shanghai but yeah you know yeah Uh, Um, i mean you know his history is basically very one very long it's complicated (laughs) yes it is yes yes so with and um, I want to quote Suetonius, though, and, and what you were saying earlier and about the fan theory, which I think, honestly, one, I think there's a lot of smoke that that Martin left to be there for 
an HBO show to eventually make clear, but it's 100% like, I think that, yes. Before, before, like, Magor got crowned, basically, Magor seems to be, one, like, he, he didn't have the opportunity to show his darkness, maybe, but it's also that he seemed to be not Magor the Cruel. He just was Magor. He was just Prince Magor at that point. Well, no. If I remember and correctly, like, he, he, didn't he, he torture he, animals though when he was when he was young? Didn't he torture cats? That's like that's like something that Maester Yandel says. Like, you know, there are stories like this, but like he himself, oh. like even Yandel's like, yeah, no, that's propaganda for like after he had become Magor the Cruel. Ah, okay. That's like that's like there's all these like stories of like of like the first time he held a sword, he killed a cat. It's like, and like Maester Yandel himself is like. Okay, come on, people. Really? Really? He was, like, always this, like, serial killer crazy kid from the get-go? Like, really? Like, Aegon wouldn't notice that? Well, I mean, that does that does fall in with uh, Gurm's uh, stated love of uh, political historiography and unreliable oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. narrators. He, 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 that, yeah. is, that is probably one of the signature moves of his, uh, I, I guess you'd call them academic books about westeros yeah. like not yeah. the stories the academic books yes i adore it about it i love oh, i love it i love i it. love that there's basically like two really distinct ways you can look at aegon the usurper and sir Kristen cole rhaenyra that like one side is like really really there for them and the other side's like they are totally awful like i don't know why people like them it's i love it i love it so but but basically, like, Magor suddenly, and maybe Tiana did something, maybe you, you, you suggested maybe Senya did something. I think some some blood magic happened, because just, like, immediately afterwards, just Magor fully embraced the Conqueror and really just became super, super Magor the Cruel. He became instantly, when he burns the, the sept where debatably faith militant were like maybe we should back him now he went through the the test and he passed the test so maybe he is our king well i mean certainly you, you can't you can't blame anybody for thinking that although it makes me wonder then how much autonomy did he have how much control did he have because i mean he there ha- i don't think there had to be a handler at all times because mm-hmm. we see that with uh where it's uh gregor clegane or beric dondarian or any yeah, of these guys that's true, that's true too. so yeah. So, I mean, because, I mean, certainly we think that, I mean, Gregor Clegane might actually need a minder at all times. Otherwise, he goes on a murderous rampage. Oh, yeah, 100 um, But, you know, Beric Dondarrion does not. He just loses pieces of himself. Uh, you see, <laughs> La- Lady Stoneheart still acts, even though there's a lot that's going on. I mean, th- those are, you know, Lady Stoneheart is a, just a full-blown revenant. Yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, th- there's still... There's still autonomy there. There's still thinking there. There's still, you know, thought, decision, action, as opposed to an automaton or something like that, where there is no thought. There is yeah. somebody else's decision and action. Yeah. Uh, but I think I think Magor still had autonomy. Yes. In terms, at least in terms of at least when we see with Kyburn, who's doing the more whole mad scientist Frankenstein's monster type thing. Yeah. I, that seems to be something more unique to Kyburn, whereas this kind of dark magic resurrection type stuff 
seems to actually be less of a build an automaton and more bring a person back, but they're always come back changed. Yeah, that's what I mean by that. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, well, like when, like, well, well, let's talk about it right now, just in fun of, of like that, the Dundarian, each time he comes back, he, he says like in that beautiful moment in the storm of swords, like just, I come back less, like each yeah. time less and less. And like Arya herself, like this isn't like the handsome man that Jane Poole was ogling over. Yeah. Like, this is like a wholly different person. And same with like, and obviously when you get to Stoneheart, where she's just, as you say, a revenant, where she's just this like vengeance-driven, yeah. like everything about Kate, Kate, Catelyn that was like sweet yeah. underneath yeah. her hard hardness that yeah. she had to have, that yeah. is like gone, and she's just now vengeance only. And yeah. so that's going to be great for what we see what happens with John. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it's but, like Catelyn yeah. could definitely have motherly fury, but Stoneheart is just fury. Yeah. There is no motherly aspect to it. Um, and it, it's because, it's I mean, this is actually you see this sometimes a lot of historical stuff that we have, too. The idea of when you come back from the other side, you are less mm-hmm. um, an even uh, ancient shamanic traditions. Uh, usually the, the, the shaman would go would either be very sick or something like that or go into a, a vision quest or whatever. And they would leave a piece of themselves on the other side. So when they recover, they have that conduit, which gives them this extra spiritual knowledge. So I think you can see that. Uh, but, you know, here you see it in this novel series as a negative because yeah. you're losing pieces of your humanity. And one of the central themes of the book is humanity and yeah. the human heart at war with itself mm-hmm. and the the expressions of what it means to be human and doing the right thing, even when when it won't get you anything. I mean, that's the yeah. mission statement of Eddard Stark's. Uh, arc in the first book is that it doesn't <laughs> oh yeah well, it, it, it doesn't save him it doesn't save Eddard but what happens in book five is you you hear a uh, uh, big bucket wall was it yeah it's a big bucket wall I think it's big bucket wall who says you know no we're not going to go to the uh, going marching through 10 foot tall snow to save uh, someone to, to save a girl we're saving the Ned's daughter yeah and it's just no that's yes, so that's yeah. that it's it's such a great line and same thing with uh, brienne you know it you know she you know who what's his name uh nimble dick crab ends up dying yeah and if this was a, a thing you know it was a, it's a human moment when she digs him a grave well she makes shagwell dig, dig him a grave but she buries yeah. him and she pays him what he's owed and you know that money would be very helpful to her but it means something for her to leave it behind. It means yeah. something to apologize to him about how she didn't trust him. It means something. And that's what it is. You know, we see this with this loss of humanity is that this loss of humanity needs to be significant. I mean, Beric Dondarrion can barely recognize his mother. I yeah. mean, and what, you know, there's, that's one of the bonds that you, you know, a lot of people yeah. will have is, you know, between a, a child and a mother and he's losing it. And it, it's just, it's tragic to see it, to see him come back as just this essentially scarecrow of a man. Yeah. This hollow thing that by the end, it's like what whatever was left of him, and then he gives it his life to to bring back C- Catelyn, but yeah. what does he bring back? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, too, and that's the, I also think that's a moment of existential celebration because 
he's still, even though he's lost so much of himself, there's still an underlying element of him that is fundamentally good and decent and empathetic and kind. Mm-hmm. And the fact that even though he's lost himself, I mean, that that's the same thing. I mean, that's another theory, theory is about what we do. You know, it's like the villainous yeah. people do things, but I mean, you know, they, they do, you know, some people do hero, heroic things as well. And the fact that they're doing it, even if it doesn't help them, is so meaningful. Mm-hmm. So we're saying that we don't like Megor, but... Maybe yeah. something happened to him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, then that's the, and it's, it's worth examining, but I, I think at the yeah. end we, we still have to go, we have to come down to the thing is he did have autonomy. And even if there was some weirdness going yeah. on, he, he still knew what he was doing. I mean, you know, when he, when he goes and he kills just a bunch of people to bring back a mountain of skulls and everyone's like, were they actually faith militant yeah. or were they just, were yeah. they just people who didn't say hail Magor fast enough for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's the the thing. It's a good thing that Jaharis was able to take him out when he did. I mean, it's it's telling that. Well, the, not so the, much the, take him out, and that's the great thing of like you get what comes around comes around. Yeah. Is that? I mean, is that? I he, find it. He, it's it's honestly a preview of the Mad King in a way of just like oh yeah, and that he's ostracized like when they finally like know like oh yeah suddenly it's also like Aegon the second gets it gets it also justfully and rightfully i'm just like it's like wait a minute where where where's all my army where are my allies and like uh they're all defected your grace yeah and i mean and you have this it's, it's interesting too because even even the the good things they're not the good things but the non-military the non-warfare things that Magor does is steeped in bloodshed. He yeah. Completes, he completes the Red Keep. And now this should be a moment of celebration because it's a great monument, a great castle. Building something is often seen as this, this positive thing. It's it's better than destruction. Creation is better than destruction. It's a theme that's, you know, that goes back to before. I mean, I'm sure it goes back to all the way to oral traditions from before the, mm-hmm. the concept of writing. Uh, is that create? But he goes no, no. Now I'm going to throw a party and murder all the stonemasons, so all of the secrets are mine alone. Yeah. Oh, we need to go and award the greatest fief in Westeros, Harren Hall, this massive castle. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to have a giant melee, and it's going to fill the streets of Lord Harroway's town with blood. And the person that's going to win is going to survive just long enough to pass it on to his heir. It's like, wow, really? You know, tournaments are supposed because you see this. If you see tournaments, they're supposed to be celebratory affairs. Yeah, the tourney at Ashford Keep is an amazing tournament. Uh, you know, except for whole you know area yeah. bright flame. It, it goes south real quick, but but at the yeah. beginning, every, all, the the spirits are high. The spirits are high at the tourney of the hand. All yeah. of the spirits are incredibly high at these tournaments. And well, actually, tourney of the hand, you know, that one little death and the oh, the, I mean, soured it, yeah. but yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of the kind of the, the running theme with Martin in tournaments is things go south real quick. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you see all of these high spirits in the air, and it's supposed yeah. to be the, the pageantry and the jousting is fun. Yeah. But it's like not not even you don't you don't even it doesn't even start. Yeah. You no, know, we're gonna have a fifty man melee to the death. Go. Yeah. That's like the Joker from Batman, uh, from the Dark Knight. It's yeah, uh, like, like it's nothing, yeah. nothing but blood for as far as the eye could see. I mean, that's why. I mean, you know, at the end of it, he's just full, full blown, well, you know, full blown monster. 
Yeah. Well, it just, and that's why I also say, like, is like just Visenya, though, like, just miraculously is able to guide him to be just like moderately keep it mildly in control ish. Yeah. Yeah. I know. If she she wasn't there, even the dogs would have turned against him. Yeah. I'm just like, and, and it's so strange of just like that. And then, like, obviously, like, the one th- saving grace is that somehow, like, like he just can't have kids despite this. But also, it's like these poor women, like, he just continually oh, yeah. tries and tries and tries. <laughs> like, it's, it's, he, like, Martin made an even more evil version of, of Henry VIII. I'm just like, wow, ooh, that is... Yeah. And and it's also interesting too because you can kind of see the masculine perspective of it uh, yeah. through that because it's like all right you know by most physical standards Magor is uber alpha male you know I mean he's yeah. he's stronger than Aegon the Con like I mean you know he, he, this guy's got arms like tree trunks and stuff like that Aegon yeah. was a, was a great warrior but Magor was freaking ripped yeah and so he's got oh you know he's you know a great dragon rider is a great warrior. He, he has all of these masculine traits, but he cannot sire an heir. Yeah. And and then you know then he sees his his weedy little uh his weedy little brother you know who's yeah you know, he thinks of as this this effeminate you know you know yeah prim, you know primping dandy but it's just kid after kid after kid after kid you know yeah it's just and he's like well wait five and I don't have any. Yeah, and then you know, and then he goes and he says, uh, you know, then he goes and gets all of these, and the more women he takes, because you know, if the, okay, it's like for his for his uh, first wife, okay, he's like, all right, well, maybe it's her problem, yeah. you know, I mean that, but then you know, he gets another wife and another wife and another wife, still, and the only thing they he uh, he births are these crazy monsters, yeah, uh, so then you see you know these genetic chimeras, yeah. so then you. You and see, then he the, just like uses, of course, his insane logic of like, oh wait a minute, maybe yeah. they're being poisoned. Well, given how terrible Magor is, that's not—it's not outside the realm of possibility. But yeah, you can definitely yeah. see him grasping at straws for that, saying there must yeah. be some other thing. I cannot be unable to father a child because I am too yeah. masculine. Um, Magor. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, as it turns out, uh, no, no, dude. It, yeah. you know, it, it's okay. It's like if, uh, if there's, if a coupling doesn't have a child, it, there could be a lot of reasons. If yeah. six couplings don't have a child, chances are really good. It's the common element among them. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, um, and that's what, like, uh, well, when, when, like, uh, right after he kills Aegon, a- the, the uncrowned, mm-hmm. and it's like, and I love that moment in, 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 uh, Love. Okay, let me let me phrase that. It's a magnificent moment of just like this insane creepiness of, of just how evil, Magor is. Of just like, these three people come up with offers like, well, maybe you should take Reyna as your bride because you know she was married to your rival claimant. I was like, hmm, I think you you're right there. And then another one's like, oh, you should take another bride also just because you know, just better the odds. Oh, I think you're right. And it's like, oh, and you know what? You should probably marry someone with proven fertility. You know what? I think you're all right. So I'm going to marry three women. Uh, I mean, that's just, I mean, oh my God. And they're all, and they're all women that, that, whose husbands I've killed, by the way. 
Yeah. And I also think that's another that's another thing of that, you know, performance of hyper masculinity, because a man is married and sires children. So since I am the clearly the most macho man of all, I will have the of three. Why? Well, and also, you know, one upping Aegon the Conqueror, you know, Aegon had two yeah. wives. I'm going to have three, which yeah. is again, I mean, that's another, you know, machismo one upsmanship of. Yeah uh Magor, but i mean yeah it's just it's it's just you know he's at this point i think he's just trying to chase anything that he can yeah. in order to to shake that off and of course because like everything you know Magor does is soaked in blood as you say every single uh husband of these women has been personally killed by Magor. yeah so <laughs> it's like yeah. Because again, you know, Magor can do nothing that's not steeped in blood. Yeah. Well, that's his only response. And that's why, like I say, like he's basically he and what you said earlier of parroting is that he just likes that like my father was a warrior. I am a warrior. Yeah. Like like force is his only like ever response. Like even when he when like you say, like even when he builds a freaking castle, he must somehow soap it soak it in blood. Yeah. Just like and, just yeah, and it's like I bet you he would he doesn't even care about it. He's like, well, look, I mean, Aegon's conquest there, you know, that wasn't people didn't just sit down in a room and hash that out. That was on the battlefield. It's like yes, but it was also in a room, yeah. you know. And I think that's exactly that's the lesson really of Aenys and Maegor is that you can't just do something. You have to understand it. You have yeah. to evaluate it. You must have context. You must have understanding. It's it's a good life lesson, I say. Yeah. And that I think is uh, our perfect segue into uh, the final topic for the final king for this era. Okay. And yep. uh, of just wonderful Jaharis, of just that, yeah. of that he does like recognize, okay, I can't be my father, I must be a warrior. So he gets the best people to train him to be a warrior, and he becomes someone that that one uh, Kingsguard knight who obviously is a bit bi- biased. Yeah. And yep. needs to flatter, but I think rightfully also says like, I think if you fought Magor, you'd win. Yeah. No, and, and then you you see all of this. I think you know we're gonna do the the early Jaharis because after the the Jaharisi and Leo code, that's when we get into a new age. But yeah. yeah, no, it's you see, and this is kind of impressive, is because you actually see a return to the completion of Aegon, because he gets Jaharis gets so many different factions to support him. He gets the Lannisters. Yeah, he gets, uh, was it, Septon Moon. Uh, he gets all of these different factions to go behind him and unite in a vision of a leader. And that's exactly what Aegon did. That was the successful part of Aegon's conquest is when people came and believed in him. Now, certainly, I mean, you know, a guy like Edmund Tully, he has nothing to lose, really, if he's going yeah. to do that, given how terrible Black Heron was. Yes. But, you know, you have then you have... You know, Lauren the Last swears fealty. You have mm-hmm. um, Torin Stark who swears fealty, and they work towards this idea of it. And the fact that you can see them uniting now, I mean, certainly they're uniting in the threat uh, against existential threat Magor, who yeah. is legitimate. I mean, he's basically, I mean, at this point, he's less of a uh, a man and more of like a natural disaster in the shape <laughs> of a man. Yeah, just some sort of tornado okay, actually, killing everything he touches. Fun question, like kind of uh, just your own take. Magor mm-hmm. in the end, suicide. Someone killed him, or just the Iron Throne itself just killed him. 
Okay, so that is a that is I think it's suicide, but I want it to be either the last surviving Mason or the son of the last surviving Mason. Like yeah. I I want it to be that. Mm. I don't think it is, but I want it to be. Yeah. But yeah, I no, I think all I think it was suicide. Like a, the in fire and blood of just like his 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 one one of his black brides like coming in and seeing him on on the Iron Throne, like that is such a magnificent image. Oh like, yeah, holy wow! I used to make a joke uh, all the time, and it's like uh, Magor spent his entire reign trying to kill all of his response of uh, his uh, enemies, and in the end, he finally found he was able to resolve his uh, problems by killing. And it's <laughs> just as a joke for for his suicide. Yeah, but uh, but I mean, you know, yeah. Uh, black humor and all, or uh, callous humor and all that. But yeah, no, I, I think it was suicide. <laughs> I, mean, I think it was suicide. I think ultimately he realized that, uh, I think he was just so confused. So un just, you know, the fact that nothing he did worked and everything yeah. was coming undone. His entire worldview was this idea that if I kill enough people, if I just keep fighting, I will win. Yeah. And in the well, end, I mean, like just, part, of, part of the great example of like his insane thinking is like, Oh crap! Alyssa escaped. So hey, Alyssa, I got your son and I killed him. Now yes. you don't want me to desecrate the body. It's like, well, no, I don't want you to. But yeah, it's like, well, come and come and get him. And it's like, yeah, no one's that stupid. Yeah. I mean, it's but like... still, poor poor kid. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean that's. Oh yeah, totally. But I mean, that's that's Magor for you. I mean, there are a lot of kids that were killed and there were even more probably that were made orphans yeah. by by what he did. So, I mean, that that's just how it is. People that went insane. Yeah. According to Gilda Inn's accounts. All this oh, stuff. yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there were more than, you know, that someone crests a ridge to see everything they have completely destroyed by Magor. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's. I mean, but no, that that is a good. It is one of those puzzlers. It's kind of like the letter of Aegon, the letter that Aegon receives yeah. from Dorne. Yeah. Oh, stuff. that's one of one of those puzzlers. And I mean, I think I think Martin deliberately throws them in there. Oh, I mean, yeah. at, at this point, at this point, he knows that he has a big fandom, and I think he throws it in there just so that they'll debate because it's interesting. Yeah. He wants to engage with the fan. And I mean, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. I think it's a great idea to do that, to engage yeah. with your fans by leaving mysteries for what them having, to. What we're discussing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, there's a great quote from Martin uh, when he's talking about Lovecraft and how he loves Lovecraft and how he just says that, that like he was kind of annoyed at some fans of Lovecraft went and tried to explain all the things that Lovecraft leaves ambiguous as mysteries of like some people trying to explain the mysteries. I'm like, no, that's the fun of the of Lovecraft stories. Is that it's a mystery? Is that you don't understand like this whole other dimension and this whole yeah. other world that like uh, that Lovecraft like gives us a tiny peek into. Yeah, it's one of the things I liked in the original Mass Effect when you finally speak with the uh, where you you finally speak with the Reapers. I'm not. I'll leave as many mini spoilers out as possible. But it's like you they won't even deign to explain to you why they're doing this <laughs> it's like it's like yeah that's it, it's intriguing because then you, you you want to explain it i mean that's uh the yeah. same thing i mean that's an instinct that we have since we're problem solvers like for example i mean i'm critical of the show but one thing i liked was when uh they made the others do all of these weird corpse spirals uh 
yeah. the reason why I like them so much is because you try to find meaning in it and you couldn't. Now, in the books, you can you can spend several pages building up the plotting and creeping tension. Mm-hmm. You can do that with a book. It's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the, the first book's prologue is so excellent. Yeah. Is, is this sense of creeping tension and, and fear. But, um, you know, you don't have that luxury with a show. You, you have a strict time limit that you need to get into. And so by the idea of building something that looks like it should make sense, but you can't understand why, it unsettles you. Yeah. And uh, I like that about, uh, you know, the, the unsettling questions that Martin leaves behind when he's just yeah. like, what, what could this have been? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, whether that's just a simple mystery like who killed Magor or, you know, what the heck happened to Princess Aria? <laughs> or, oh, yeah. Or um, I'm thinking more if you're talking about unsettling stuff. Is there really is, is Heron Hall really cursed? Yeah. What the hell is going on with the the bridge of stars? You know, why does the, the boat go under it twice despite only going in one direction? Yeah, it's like, hmm, this is you know, this is unsettling. I'm, I'm nervous just as the characters are nervous. You feel that tension and you want to read more. Yeah. Absolutely. So with Jaharis, obviously it's, it is like he lives up to his name yep. that they give him of, of the conciliator of that time and time again, like uh, early on, he proves he's not his father in that he doesn't let the Lords or in this case, his regent of yeah. Rogar Baratheon, like say like, nope, nope. At the end of the day, I am the king yeah. and I am the ruler. Yep. And, and that's, again, you know, we're, we're looking back at the, at the completion of, of Aegon. We're looking at the resolution of, I mean, in, uh, in Hegelian philosophy, I'm not sure how familiar anyone with is, is with Hegel. There's the idea of the thesis and then mm-hmm. the antithesis, which come together and make the synthesis, which uh-huh. uses the antithesis to complete the flaws of the thesis. Now, he didn't actually use those terms. That actually came after him. But you can see Jaharis as the synthesis of the idea of a, of a Targaryen monarch from the two flawed halves of Aenys and Magor. This idea where I will be decisive, I will not hide, I will fight, but I understand when to fight, when not to fight. I yeah. understand, and just like we're going with the parrots, I understand, I am not simply doing, I am comprehending. Mm-hmm. And that is, I mean, maybe he should have been called Jaharis the understander, John Jaharis the comprehender instead of the conciliator. But the conciliator yeah. works because Westeros is so big. There's yeah. how many component? I mean, you know, there's. I mean, at this point, there's seven component realms because there'll be eight when Dorne gets into the fold. You have three different religions. You have, um, you know, however many different subgroups there are with the, each individual thing. You have all of these yep. things. There's so many things that would pull people apart, I, notions of identity that would cause people to see themselves, see others as not friends, yes. to, to, to not be Westerosi. Well, that's and what, Jaharis did it. Jaharis really, what makes him such an awesome figure and why he scored the highest of a, in our, our first season is that it's really that he creates the idea and the notion of Westerosi identity. Yes. Because really before that, and that's something that Aegon really resisted creating, is this idea that, no, you are Westerosi. The only people that really don't cling on to it are basically the Iron Islanders and the Dornish. Yeah. Maybe and the North. Yeah. 
and but there's like, cultural like, cleavage there that that they could use to to help divest themselves of it. You know, the Ironborn yes, have yes, their, yes, their religion. Yes. Dorne has its Roynish heritage. It's different, very very different laws. Well, Dorne, it's also the their history that they didn't come. They yeah, didn't yeah. They they specifically have an identity. To, to, to yeah, they specifically they, have an anti-Targaryen identity. Yeah. Um. And that kind of like in their own twisted way they can think of it is that the Targaryens came to them on bended knee. Yep. But anyways, um, when we when we talk about your Harris, it's it's building this whole it's one making King's Landing into a real city. Yeah. It's building this King's Road, so suddenly that all of the kingdoms are united by this road, by this system of of yeah orders like before he, he did like, yeah he did the all of the roads. That united westeros b- before is the night's watch and the, the language thing that, and the language yeah and now it's suddenly that although he doesn't enforce it it's like yes the faith is basically the official religion yeah. basically because i'm crowned by the high septon and but he also makes amendments and he tries to and he makes it so that he comes up with the, quite frankly, ludicrous doctrine of exceptionalism to kind of oh, yeah. make people look look past the Targaryen incest. Although he does make, at least at that point, and this is why like when you, we get to um, two episodes, I think, down the line about, about the post-Dragon Age, of that when there aren't dragons around, the doctrine of exceptionalism makes no sense. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Um, and I think that kind of, he was trying to have his cake and eat it too, essentially, yeah. with uh, where he says, hey, "Look, we are Westerosi, but we're also more than that." Yeah. And but it, it is, but the uh, the idea of building a pan Westerosi identity is worthwhile. Now it's tough to do, except with Aegon, because it, it risks rocking the boat. But at the time yeah. that Jaharis comes into power, you know, you have people that have just lived and died knowing that the Iron Throne was there was always there and mm-hmm. so that's that's really the right time to do it and then not only that but it also vastly simplifies administrative concerns and things like that uh you know you have a decentralized monarch you have a weak feudal monarchy because they just don't have very many troops although they have dragons which is a great equalizer and in many yeah. cases you know it's, it's it goes far beyond equalizing it makes it a huge mismatch but you see this uh, this idea that if you can build this idea of Westerosi, you know, pan-Westerosi identity, it makes the administration and the unification of the kingdom much simpler. And you can actually even see a lot of uh, use of the pan-Westerosi institutions that that are in, in place. I mean, you have the Maesters, you have the Night's Watch, mm-hmm. you have these things which, I mean, that's, I mean, visiting the Night's Watch was a phenomenally good idea for uh for Westeros or for 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 Alisan and later for Jaharis because it's it's an idea of everyone there is a man of the night's watch it yeah. doesn't matter whether you're from Dorne or the Iron Islands or the Vale or wherever yeah. you are a man of the night's watch and they are your brothers so that idea is actually a good one i mean that's certainly why Visenya modeled uh, the Kingsguard after the night's watch Yep, because the this idea of you lose the the past things of you and then become this new thing. You serve a is, higher cause now. Yeah, yeah. Is it is it a good? It's a good idea, but uh, the fact of the matter is, it's not going to work for everyone. I mean, Westeros is just too large to say, let's go and leave parts of yourself behind and become this other thing. 
but yeah. this devotion to an ideal with which you know stems from you know using the money following the laws that are the same you know seeing all of this consolidation you can see he's starting to gradually shape the identity of the population to be Westerosi, where they think of themselves as King Jaharis's man instead of a Stark man or a Lannister man. And to be a bit blunt, it also helps that he reigns for so long that... Oh, he, yes. ...that he's oh, able to yeah. really sell this idea. Yeah, um, no... But, like, definitely long-term rule always, like, helps endear you of, yeah. of that. Stability and consistency is key. Yeah. It, they that's, reinforce themselves. Yes, that, that's the one thing people love about, like people just are in England are so used to their queen, like they they all may have different opinions on the queen, but the queen's part of their life. Have you seen the pictures of the different U.S. presidents? The the album of everyone with Queen Elizabeth, all of the U.S. presidents with Queen <laughs> Elizabeth. It goes from like Eisenhower all the way to. Um, I think the last time I saw it was with Obama. I mean, there's probably one with... Uh, yeah, there's one with Trump. Yeah, yeah with Trump, yeah. But uh, but it's just, it's just interesting because you see her gradually getting just a little older each time. Mm-hmm. And, and But you see it's just, you know, different dude, different dude, different dude, different dude, different dude. Um, and it, it's, it is really funny. It's a cool... It's a nice little thing to... Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, just a little stark so I, contrast. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I, think, I think the UK has one, too, with all of the different prime ministers... With oh Queen yeah, Elizabeth. yeah. So it's just, yeah. it's just, you know, I mean, Naturally. I'm I'm sure if the internet and Photoshop existed in the era of Queen Victoria, the same principle would apply. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So definitely, with um, something I admire about Jaharis that we haven't touched upon yet, though, is and you touched upon it of using force, but honestly, the great thing that that Rogar Baratheon is the first to really experience is that Jaehaerys would often employ, learn from Magor's mistake of like, no, I don't have to use force. I just have to threaten to use force. Oh yeah. That, that what Reyna recognizes like that you always do what Teddy Roosevelt did of speak softly, but carry a big stick and like, oh, Hey, yeah. like, yes, I want to be, uh, I forgive you. Absolutely. Uncle, you were misguided. I forgive you. And right behind him is uh, Vermithor. So just yeah. always like, yeah. yeah, I forgive you, but yeah, I got a dragon behind me. So and so yeah. when they when like the High Septon dies, they make they make sure that like the next like coincidentally, Alisane and Jaharis came to oversee the election. Yeah, the... and they weren't at all trying to force them to elect someone who believed in exceptionalism but lo and yeah. behold someone was elected that was an exceptionalist oh yeah i mean and you see you see that with um you know this idea of um using hard power as soft power the threat of hard power as soft power i mean the the later half of the 20th century was defined by the cold war and the the idea of deterrence yeah. and mutually assured destruction but it's it's even interesting because so this is something I actually learned not too long ago, uh, was that apparently during the the, the war or the, the period of 1945 to 1948, when the U.S. had the bomb and the Soviet Union did not have the bomb, Tr- Truman apparently threatened Stalin with nuclear destruction something like five times. Not surprised. Uh, 
And so to, in order to get him to do what he wanted, yeah. it was this, this idea. So, I mean, the idea of a threat is more powerful or can be more powerful than the actual use of it. There's a, Absolutely. there's an old, oh yeah, see, there's an old saying, violence perceived is violence achieved. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and also to sympathetically say the what if, I think in, in many ways, this is what Egg wished he had and what he would have oh, done yeah. if he had dragons is he would not have used them. I think even, even like he just wanted to, basically do what Jaharis did of just say like, Hey, yeah. I got a dragon behind me. If you don't like what I'm saying, dragon, dragon. Yeah, no, I think, I think the power of it is something that he wanted. Um, so if there was a way he could have had the power of a dragon without the ability, you know, without the, the need to actually use it, uh, that would have been, you know, whether that it would have been, uh, you know, I mean, I really can't think of anything that's trump card that's better than like, you know, various level blackmail material on literally everyone yeah. in Westeros or something like that. He would mm -hmm. have liked it, but I don't think he would have. used. But yeah, no, I think it's it's the the threat is what he wanted. And yeah. if that's I mean, and that's a tool of statecraft as well. I mean, if you have an army under your under your control, the threat of it, whether explicit or implicit, is simply a tool. And yeah. I think that's another thing that kind of elevates Jaharis into this, you know, I, I, he is an age setter, the way Aegon the Conqueror is an age setter, is that he knew how to use every tool in his toolbox. Except for one, which... Oh, yeah, well... Is, is, no one's... Our, is the segue into our next episode, where we talk about Jaharis's one weird misogyny that ended up, in many ways, causing the dance with, with the dragons. Yep. And ending his golden age... Well, so, I say he, I say he even has he has more more flaws than that as well. But yeah, no, his uh, I say his his primary flaws were personal. Let's just yes. say as the teaser, let's, that that'll be the teaser, is that we could say Jaharos was great, asterisk. <laughs> well, I, I I'm comfortable saying Jaharos was great. It's just yeah, it's just like there are some problems that he unintentionally created that led oh, to yeah. the greatest civil war in Westerosi history. So yeah, definitely the most destructive. I mean, yeah. didn't they say it's like something is like a one out of every five people in the dance of the drag uh, in Westeros suffered some injury from the dance of the dragon. So yeah. something, something, something ridiculous like that. Yeah, It's horrendous. So we'll get into that uh, in the next episode. So thank you all for coming on and thank you, Jim, for joining me for this discussion. Hey, this is this was a great idea. I think it's a great idea to to look at it and to think of the Targaryen dynasty in a new way. So I'm just happy to be a part of it, and hopefully this really catches on, and maybe we'll hear people talking about the Conquest Age and yeah. the uh, the you know Jaharisian Golden Age and things like that. That that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. All right, see you next week when we talk about the it all falling apart with the debatably Dark Age of the Dance with the Dragons. See you then. Have a good day.